James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if you are with us last week, you know that we began our study in the book of James and spent most of our time in just verse 1. But then we moved into verses 2 and following where it talked about counting it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. For these trials have a purpose. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We began to look at God's purposes in our suffering and God's purposes in our trials. And the first thing we looked at last week was that our, the trials that God brings into our life are used to confirm our faith. Back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable of the, the different types of soils and how the word of God goes out and it's responded to in different ways. And the, he talked about the seed that fell on the hard path. And he said, this is the one who had the word sown in their heart, but they didn't understand it. And the enemy comes and takes it away before they understand it. The Bible then said that this is those who receive the word sown in their hearts. And that is the, the seed that falls on the rocky soil. And they actually spring up. And, and there's a type of response even to the, to the seed. But then trouble comes. And when trouble comes, they go away because they really had no root. And then, of course, we know about the thorny soil and the seed that falls on the thorny soil and springs up. Sure looks like a response to the seed, yet... At the same time, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of well choke it, and they prove that it wasn't real salvation. And of course, then the seed falls on the good soil, and it produces a crop. And in the same way that we, had, we can see that Jesus was teaching that in the soils, we know that the Bible teaches that there's going to be those who claim to believe, who claim to have salvation. They might even get baptized. They might even join a church. But then God doesn't do things the way God, they want them, him to do things. And mama dies, and I prayed that mama wouldn't die, and mama died, and they walk away. Actually, I don't know if you've ever written, known this. Write this down. There's a beatitude that most people don't know. We all know the beatitudes in Matthew 5. But there's a forgotten beatitude in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. It says this, Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus told this to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was sitting in prison. And he was starting to wonder now, are you the one or should we look for another? The same John the Baptist that said, that's the one. That's the one the Holy Spirit came down on. That's the one I'm not unworthy to untie his shoes. That's the one. That's the Lamb of God. When things were going in his life different than he thought, and Jesus wasn't looking like the Jesus he thought he was going to be, John began to question. And Jesus sent word back to John. Pretty much he said, you go tell John everything's right on schedule. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he said this in Matthew 11, verse 6. And blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. And blessed are those who don't fall away on account of how I run my world. And so the Bible actually says that there's going to be many that when God doesn't do things the way they want them to, they actually walk away from the faith. The Bible says they never had salvation if they do that. Yet for those of us who actually stick when God does things like we don't understand. And by the way, I want to honesty here. Have, is there anybody here tonight? And I want to see show of hands here. Have, have you fully understood everything Jesus has done in your life? 
Have you fully agreed with everything that he's done in your life? No. Then why are you still here? I love it. In John chapter 6, the Bible tells us that Jesus makes this statement. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the Bible then says around verse 60, he said, upon hearing this, the scripture says, upon hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples left. They no longer followed him. They went away saying, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, will you guys go away also? And Peter speaks up and he says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Did Peter understand his words? No, but he at least knew this much. You're the only game in town. You're the only real one. Now, I don't fully know what you're doing. I don't always understand. And you're going to see in the days to come, I'm going to try to talk you out of things that God has planned for me that's best. But I'm not going anywhere. Now, of course, of those 12, there was one who went away. Y'all know who that is, right? Judas. But by the way, do you know Judas was a picture of the thorny soil? You see, in John 6, we see the disciples that walk away from Jesus because he's now doing things and saying things and acting in ways they don't understand. And it, they're confused and trouble comes and they go away. But Judas is the thorny soil conversion. Judas sure looked like salvation. And actually, he was able to cast out demons. He went and preached in Jesus's name. Just like those that Jesus said are going to come to him one day and say, didn't we preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? And I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you look at Judas's life, Judas was expecting Jesus to be the Messiah on this earth now, ruling and reigning. And Judas had a problem where he was more interested in this life and money. The Bible actually says that he was stealing from the treasury. And then as we get closer and closer to the cross and it becomes more and more evident that Jesus isn't going to overthrow Rome. He's not going to set up his kingdom right now. He's going to go die. He's going to let them kill him. Judas said, I didn't sign up for this. And he actually sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas went away. It looked like salvation for a while, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it. His salvation wasn't real. But for those of us, who even though he doesn't do things as we want, even though this world is trying to pull us away from him, those of us who stick, the Bible says that the trials have come to prove our faith genuine. We looked at that last week. And we started to move into the next thing that trials are used to accomplish. And that is to produce steadfastness, endurance, Patience. Some of your translations say long-suffering. By the way, long-suffering, does that sound like an easy road? No. You know, patience is one thing, and patience is waiting. But long-suffering is another thing. Long-suffering is a patience that's hard. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, if we're not willing to go through the trials that God has in mind for His purposes, as you're going to see from Scriptures tonight, we're actually going to be lacking in some of the things that God desires for us. And the Bible even says that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You're going to see tonight as we look at the scriptures. And in order for me to get you where I need you to go, I'm going to kind of preach where we're going ahead of time before we get there. But we're going to take a look at the fact that Jesus himself 
learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. Jesus himself had to go through the things that we're going through so that he can be a faithful high priest for us. But I want you to understand that if Jesus had to go through these things for us, why are we thinking that we won't go through them as well? Oh, there's lots of preachers out there today and lots of churches that will tell you that if you become a Christian, you can have your best life now and you can just start enjoying the yellow brick road all the way to heaven. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And you're going to see that tonight. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Sorry, not 1 Peter chapter 1. James chapter 5. Sorry, James chapter 5. We'll come back to 1 Peter in a little bit. James chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the real judge is standing at the door. Now, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here James, as we're going to get to this later on in our study of the book of James, but here we see that he says again, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And you want an example of patience? Take the prophets. By the way, let's do that for a second. Let's go back and take a look at the prophets and let's go back in our minds and look at, look at Job. I'm not going to go back and have you look at the scriptures, but I want you to go back in your minds. I don't know how many of you all know much about Isaiah's ministry. We remember how Isaiah had the experience by God having him have a vision and he saw the throne of God and he was taken into the presence of God so much so that he was, well, he just said this. He didn't say, wow, it's so cool to be here. I can't wait to tell everybody what I saw. He said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord of glory. And an angel comes and takes his tongs and takes coals from the altar, and touches his lips. And God says, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Very few preachers ever preach the next verse. You know what happens in the next verse, verse 9? God says, you're ever going to be preaching and no one's going to listen. You're going to be ever speaking and no one will hear. Oh, and if you do a little more study, you'll find out that by the end of Isaiah's life, he was sawn in two. He's the one that's described in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and following, about those who wandered in deserts and caves. The world was not worthy. Some were killed by the sword. Others were sawn in two. We understand from early church tradition that Isaiah was put inside of a hollow log, and they cut the log in half. And it wasn't a magic trick. Isaiah spent his whole life preaching to a people that didn't want to listen, and they eventually killed him for it. But aren't we glad that he was faithful? Aren't we glad that he was steadfast? Aren't we glad that he didn't say, this is hard, forget this mess? By the way, Jeremiah's message was received in the same way. He was set apart by God to be a prophet before he was born. 
Yet if you study Jeremiah's writings, there was a point where he got so tired of getting beat up for saying what God said to the people of Israel. He, he, he gave his prophecy, his amanuensis, his scribe wrote it down, and he said, just go out and read it. I can't, I'm not going to go out and say it anymore. I'm tired of them beating me up. He even says at one point in the book of Jeremiah, he says, God, I want to quit, but I can't. Your word's like a fire in my bones, and I have to let it out. And even at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, when the nation of Israel goes into Babylon, it's not quite the end of his ministry, but near the end of his ministry, the king of Babylon and the people of Babylon actually respected Jeremiah's words even more than the people of Israel. They, his words had already made it into, into Babylon. And they said, hey, come on over into Babylon and uh, enjoy the last years of your life. But Jeremiah knew that God was telling him to stay with the few that were left in Israel. And his ministry was still not listened to, even though all the things that God had said through him came to fruition. What about Job? We always look at Job and we say, well, Job had, uh, Satan was allowed to work in Job's life and, and all of his kids and all of his possessions were lost. But that was just the first test. Immediately the second test comes and, and Satan's allowed to actually have him give him physical ailments and boils on his body so that he just wants to die. And his wife even says, just curse God and die. But yet he keeps his integrity. Yet that's not the done. He's not done having tests. His friends show up and they give him comfort for one week. And then after that week, here comes the third test. All of those friends now spend chapter upon chapter upon chapter berating him and saying, this is really happening because you're a bad guy. And he knew that wasn't true. And he spends all this time defending himself. But in the midst of him defending himself, God takes him to a deeper understanding of himself and of God to the point that at the end of the book of Job, even though Job had a lot of questions that he wanted to ask God, when God showed up, Job said, you know what? I talked about things I didn't understand I shut my mouth now and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I'd heard of you, but now I've seen you. And I don't have to ask any questions anymore. I know some of you have said to yourself over the years or said to other people, when I get to heaven, I got a few questions I want to ask God. Let me help you out. No, you won't. No, once you see what he already sees and once you know what he already knows, you, you won't be having that pompous of an attitude where you say, I got a few questions. But God is taking you through times of difficulty, not just to confirm your faith, but to grow you in your relationship with him and your knowledge of who you really are and who he really is. That's what we need to know. And as you're going to see in a little bit, the only way you're going to actually move along in that process is to take your eyes off of the people around you. But you notice he said, God has a purpose in the suffering. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and following. The Hebrew writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, sometimes you were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of what? Endurance. Endurance. 
so that when we have done, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Folks, God's in the process of purifying his bride. Listen closely to what I want you to hear. God is in the process in these last days of the church age of purifying his bride and getting her ready for when he returns. And the Bible says, and I'm going to show, you to the, show this to you later, that, it, that right now God's purpose is cleaning the church, judging the church. Oh, one day there'll be a judgment for the world, but right now he's working on all those of us who are his. And he uses trials to help us in the pruning process. That's why Jesus, when he talked about the abiding relationship, he said, everyone that's in me that's producing fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it can produce or they can produce more fruit. Those of you ladies who like to garden or any guys out there like to garden, if you have an orange tree and it proves a wonderful crop and you want to have a bigger crop next year, what are you going to do? You're going to prune it. You're going to cut it back. Even though it was big and beautiful and round, you're going to actually cut it back. Why? Because you know that that's the way that it's going to produce more fruit. And in the same way, God says, I want you just to abide in me, but don't be surprised when I take you through things that are hard. I have a purpose. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we don't what? If we don't give up. You have need of endurance. You have need of steadfastness. Oh, and by the way, God's the only one, and I'm going to take you to Scripture to show you this. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. God's the only one who produces steadfastness. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 16 and keep reading into chapter 3. It says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace... May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the what? Steadfastness of Christ. Who's the one that's going to produce the steadfastness in you and I? Christ. What does he use to produce steadfastness? Suffering. Trials. By the way, I've heard people say for years, don't pray for patience. Have you ever heard that? You know what you're really saying when you say don't pray for patience? Don't pray for any evidence of the Holy Spirit. By the way, isn't that one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit? One of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What's that next one? Patience. But we were like, we've been taught in the church to say, don't pray for patience because it means God's going to put you through a trial because that's how he produces patience. That's true. But you're asking God not to produce in you any evidence of him being in you. 
So instead of saying, why the trial? Why not me? Lord, you said that you are going to conform me into your image. And just like you shaped your son while he was in the flesh, you're going to be doing the same things in me. Oh, that leads us to the next purpose in trials. First one is to confirm that our salvation is real, but don't just stay there. It's also to produce this endurance, this steadfastness, this, this perseverance. But the only way that that is going to happen is if the third purpose is accomplished, which is to drive you closer to Jesus. That's why the trials have come, not just to produce perseverance, but actually to drive you closer to Jesus. Because as you go closer to Jesus, the perseverance will be produced. The steadfastness will be produced. Do you understand? God doesn't want you to produce steadfastness in your own life. He doesn't want you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't want you to have a stiff upper lip. He doesn't want you to be a self-made man. No, he wants you to say, help. He says, oh, by the way, the trial came so you would say help. And that you would call to me. What we do is we start looking for ways to get out of it or fix it or have it go away. Oh, go to John chapter 16. There's a famous passage of scripture, but I think a lot of us have missed something Jesus said here. John 16, look at verses 32 and 33. In John 16, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said this. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. That's important. I, and I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Don't miss what he says here. He said, you guys are all going to leave me alone, but I'm fine. You know why? Because this test, this trial, this continued trial is actually going to make me even rely on the Father even more. The Father's with me. That's who I'm looking to. I wasn't looking to you guys for comfort. I was looking to him all along. Does he use the body to help and encourage? Yes, but if everyone deserts you, you still have God. I think you're going to be all right. And then Jesus said this, in this world, you will have trouble in who you'll have peace. In him. Did you catch that? In the world, you will have trouble. But this trouble has been allowed so that you would run to me. Years ago, when I was a seminary student, uh, back in New Orleans, 30 plus years ago, me and my buddies, four of us made a company where we did remodeling, painting, whatever. We just we were capable to do some of that stuff. And so we, all, we made our own little business where we did side jobs of painting people's houses or whatever needed to be done, kind of repairs and stuff. And one day we were hired to paint offices at this uh, neo prenatal place where mamas would go in for their baby checkups and also come for their with their little kids afterwards and one day we were on a break and we were working with oil-based paint and we just needed to get out of the room and we went outside the building there was a sidewalk entrance into the building and on each side of that sidewalk were just brick you know little benches and we just sat Two on this side, two on that side, so that the moms and the kids had to walk between us as they went into the building. 
And by the way, back then when we used to go do painting, we didn't wear our best clothes. You knew you were going to get paint all over it, so we would wear the same outfit almost every day. It didn't smell good, but you're not going to ruin all your clothes, so you just ruin the same outfit over and over. And we also knew that if we were going to be working for a couple of days, we weren't going to shave and look like seminary students. And we looked a little rough, and we didn't smell good. And I used to wear a baseball cap on backwards, and it was pretty funny to watch as the mamas would walk into that building between us four rough-looking guys, not knowing we're Christians and about to be preachers, you know, uh, the mamas would walk through in the center of that aisle, but you know that kid would be hanging on to their leg the whole time, like, Mommy, don't go away from me. There's some scary men here. And it got me thinking about the fact that the test or the scary episode drove the child to get closer to Mama. God says, that's why I'm having you go through this, so that you will come to me. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verse 27. Look at what Jesus says here. He said, John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Whose peace does he give us? But how do we get his peace? Into him. I'm sorry? Leaning into him. Remember what Jesus taught? He said, I am the bread of life. And remember the instructions for the bread of life? They were to gather it enough for what? One day. And he taught us to pray. Father, give us today our daily bread. Not just physical needs. He knows what we need and he's going to do it. But he's also teaching us how to walk with him a day at a time. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Folks, God won't give you grace for tomorrow. He'll only give you grace for today. Oh, there'll be grace for tomorrow when tomorrow comes, but don't try to store it up. You're going to need to walk with him on a daily basis. And if you look at the study of the nation of Israel and the scriptures all the way through, even in the early church, you'll find that God told the nation of Israel, he said, I'm the one who led you in the wilderness. You didn't end up in the wilderness because you took a wrong turn or because your GPS was broke. I'm the one that led you into the wilderness. I'm the one that caused you to be hungry. I'm the one that made you thirsty. I'm the one that led you through a desert full of rocks and no water and fiery serpents. I did it so that you would follow me. You didn't have anything to go play with, to run off and chase. You were to follow me. Oh, but when I bring you into the land that I promised you, land flowing with milk and honey, be careful. Because you're going to forget me. And you're going to think your own right hand got you this wealth. And buddy, isn't that true? When our nation started, we needed God. We came to worship God and, and to be able to freely worship him. And at the beginning of our history, we just to even survive against the, na uh, the nation of England, we needed God. And if you go back and look at the, the story of those battles, it reads like Old Testament battles, doesn't it? It's obvious that God blessed and helped us start as a nation. But as we became more and more and more prosperous, just like God said, we turned away. And we have to be careful ourselves as believers in Jesus that we don't do the same thing. Go to 1 Peter now. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 6 through 11. The trials have come to make us get 
closer to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, as we get closer to Jesus and learn to lean on him on a daily basis, perseverance and steadfastness will be produced. First Peter five, verses six through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Stop. Before we go any further, I got to say something. This is something that just jumped into my head, and I know it's from the Lord, so I just want to say this to you. God uses other people to encourage us. The Bible's very clear about that. When one part suffers, we all suffer together. But don't miss this. He didn't design you to run to your brother and sister in Christ first. And for those of you who love it when people call you for comfort and counsel and you love to come, I'll talk. Your job is to point them to Jesus. When David was in the midst of his struggle and he was hiding in the rocks and the caves from Saul, he was hiding in a place called Keilah and his best friend Jonathan came and found him. And the Bible says Jonathan strengthened him in the Lord. And if you go look and read what Jonathan said, he said, God made a promise and you will be king. My father will not win in his plans to kill you because I'm going to remind you of what God has said. He, Jonathan doesn't come and say, I'm going to see what I can do. I'm going to see if I can't talk to your husband for you or your wife for you. Let me see if I can't get this fixed. Let me go see if I can't talk to my dad for you. You see what I'm saying? We want to become the Lord. Our job as we come alongside brothers and sisters is to point them back to Jesus. Well, Jim, I, I, I have a hard time hearing from God. I have a hard time walking, leaning into God. Well, that's a bigger issue. Maybe that's what we need to be talking about. Maybe this trial has come to show whether or not you really know him. Whether or not you know how to walk with him. God's suffering has purposes. So he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Once again, in the midst of the trial, where should we be looking? Who should we be leaning on? Who should we be talking to? Who should we get it, be getting our peace from? If he sends brothers and sisters to come alongside of us, great. But don't you ever start leaning on them instead of Jesus. I've touched on it earlier tonight, but I want to show it to you some more. Jesus himself went through and was shaped by suffering in this life, too. But he did it for us. You're going to see why he did it for us in a couple of ways. Go to Matthew chapter 4, though. Let's kind of start laying the foundation of what he went through. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 11. This is straight after Jesus' baptism. This is right after the Heavenly Father spoke and the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. And they all were confirming, this is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. 
Look at what happens in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by who? By the way, is that a small s or a capital S? So that's the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, tested as well, by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, look at what he says, if you are the son of God. Now stop for a second. Does Satan not know that he's the son of God? Certainly, certainly he knows. He knows who this is. The demons even knew who he was. When he walked on the earth, they were like, we know who you are. So Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, it wasn't because Satan was questioning whether or not he was the son of God. What he was really saying to Jesus was, you're the son of God. You have authority. You can do things in your own power. This whole submitting yourself to the father's plan. He's sitting up there in heaven watching all this go on. Well, you're the one who has to go down on the earth and take on human form. You're the son of God. If you're the son of God, act like the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. You have the ability to do it. I mean, this is the same Jesus that had made quail just show up. More than they could eat to the point they got sick of it. And manna every morning and water come out of rocks in the middle of nowhere. He could just say the word and the stones become bread. But what Satan was saying was, don't submit yourself to the role the Father has for you. You take the authority that you have. Oh, by the way, doesn't that sound a lot like a lot of Christians we know who love to walk around claiming the authority they have to deal with Satan? Be careful. Even though all authority has been given to Jesus, the book of Hebrews says we don't yet see everything in submission to him. Therefore, if we don't see everything in submission to him yet, even though all authority has been given to him, who are we to walk around thinking all authority is ours now and we can just command Satan this and demand Satan that? I'm not going to keep reading, but this, Satan continues to say, if you are the son of God. Why don't you just throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? Even use scripture and quoted from Psalm 91, out of context, twisted it completely. But he said, hey, the scripture says you won't hurt yourself if you just throw the angels will guard you up and you won't dash your foot against a stone. All you got to do is just throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. You won't be hurt and everybody can believe in you that way. You don't have to go to the cross. And by the way, was Jesus tempted not to go to the cross? Yes. Not just in the garden when he prayed, Father, if there's a, another way that we can do this, if there's a, any way you can remove this cup from me, I'm for it. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Jesus was tempted not to go to the cross. And Satan continually came and said, you don't have to do it this way. But Jesus also knew that he had to. For whose sake? Ours. Ours. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 9. By the way, the more, the more we look at how much Jesus went through for us, the more foolish it sounds when we cry and whine, why is this happening to me? Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
And he was heard, don't miss this, because of his what? Reverence. Now stop for a second. Jesus cried out with tears that God the Father would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Let's go back to how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, what's the next part? Hallowed, holy, revered, reverenced be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is about you, not about me. And that's why even though Jesus was tempted not to go to the cross and cried, God, let's do it a different way if possible. He reverently said, but even more important than my will is your will. And I lay it down. Folks, there's nothing wrong with having a desire not to go through some of this stuff. But if your prayer is not reverenced, it is not couched in humility and a willingness to say, ultimately, though, your will be done, not mine. See, we've been taught if you just have enough faith, God has to do it. God, I'm your child. You're supposed to take care of me. And I demand because I believe. Oh, by the way, does that sound like a reverent prayer to you or me? That sounds like you're trying to be God. Sounds a lot like Satan, doesn't it? Keep reading. Hebrews 5, verse, verse 8, after it said he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was already perfect. He be became perfect? Well, in his flesh, he had to be made complete. And in order to be made complete, he had to experience everything that we experience. I'll explain, let the Hebrew writer explain it himself. Go to Hebrews 2, look at what it says here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore, Hebrews 2, 14, since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood... He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that? He had to be made like us in every way, not just to be a human because a human uh, sinned and therefore a human had to die for sin. He also had to become like us in every way so that he could become a faithful high priest that fully understands Everything we're going through. I've made this statement before. People try to nitpick it and break it down into minutiae. But I'm going to say it again. Jesus understands everything you're going through. I challenge you to show me something that you go through that isn't similar to what God has already, Jesus himself, gone through. I had one lady say, well, has he ever had menstrual problems? 
Um, I think he understands physical suffering, and at the same time, if he's the one who created male and female, and male and female were made in the image of God, and he's the one who said because of man's sin, there's going to be uh, a man and Eve's sin, there's going to be increased pain in childbirth, and he's the one, by the way, that the Old Testament said that God a couple of times even says, I, I wanted to just have the nation of Israel nurse at my breasts, and Jesus himself said, oh, I wish I could have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Folks, females, listen to me, your femaleness comes from God. Don't say God's a female. God is God's for the father. But the femaleness and the aspects of womanhood come from him. He created you in your mother's womb. He's known you. There isn't a thought that's in your head that he doesn't already know before it makes your tongue. Don't ever go down the road that says God doesn't know what I'm going through. He had to be made like us in every way. So he could become a faithful high priest, since he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who suffer when they're tempted. What did we say the purpose of the trials were for? Not just to prove your faith is real, but to produce this steadfastness. But you can't have steadfastness produced unless it's produced by Jesus. And you can't have it produced by Jesus unless in the midst of your trial, you don't run away, but you run to him. And when you run to him, you know that he understands and you know that he cares. And you can cry and you can let him know how you feel, but you need to do it with reverence. And when you do, he will give you a peace that passes understanding. He will give you a strength from inside that the world doesn't understand. And actually, that's what this wisdom is that James is about to talk about. You see, we've always broken James chapter 1 down into different sections. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 5 talks, sorry, 2 through 4 talks about suffering and joy in your trials. James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 talks about if you lack wisdom. And we've broken it down. I don't think it should be separated. As I'm going to show you in just a little bit, because we're only going to get just touching on verses 5 through 8. I believe that the, the fact that he's talking, if any of you lack wisdom, it's talking about the wisdom you need in your trial. There's all types of wisdom, and we need that as well from God, but I think it's tied to our suffering. But let me say this to you real quickly. If Jesus had to experience suffering in this life to fulfill God's purposes for him, so too will you. I'm going to say it again. If Jesus had to experience suffering in this life to fulfill God's purposes for him, you will too. So, let's not be a group of Christians that want to just avoid suffering. Jesus said, in this life, you will have what? Suffering, tribulation. Well, I know he said in this life, but I'd like a few days off. Oh, you forget another passage of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Did you catch what Jesus just said? He said, you're not only going to have trouble in this life, you're going to have different types of trouble every day. So when we say, Lord, I don't want any trouble, we're really saying, Jesus, I just want you to be wrong. I'm sorry? Or I don't want to know more about you. I love that, Glenn. That's awesome. Or I don't want to know any more about you. I'm satisfied with where I am. I'm good. I, don't, I got enough of you to get me to heaven. I don't need any more of you. Paul said that's not how Christians ought to believe and how they ought to think. 
He said, I actually want to know Christ. This is the same Paul that wrote half of the New Testament. I want to know Christ, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, continually learning how to die to self. Jesus said, unless you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Are you starting to realize how a lot of the preaching we hear today doesn't match up with the Bible? Oh, it tickles our ears. It feeds our flesh. How many times have we heard, God wants you happy? No, he wants you to have peace. He wants you to have joy. By the way, I challenge you to find me a Bible verse that has the word joy in it that's not tied to suffering. No, seriously. Show me a passage that talks about joy that's not tied to suffering. I know some of you are sitting there going, I don't think I'm going to go to gym for counseling. Yeah. <laughs> I've told you, you're, here's my counseling. Here's what the word says. Go do it. Cry a river, build a bridge, get over it. Just go do what God says. Listen, Jesus is your counselor. Jesus is your comforter. Learn how to hear from him. And begin to allow him to produce in you a perseverance and an endurance and a steadfastness that'll take care of you even if everybody else goes away. In Acts chapter 9, though, Jesus tells Ananias, who's going to go lay hands on Paul and healed him from his blindness. He was Saul at the time. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Stop for a second. He also then in John 21 tells Peter how he's going to die. And by the way, Peter was told that he was going to die a crucifixion. You go back and look at John 21. After Jesus rose from the dead, he tells Peter, he said, look, when you were younger, you went where you wanted and dressed yourself. But when you're older, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your arms and be led where you don't want to go. The scripture then goes on and says, by this, he showed him the kind of death that he was going to die. Peter knew 25 years before he was crucified that he was going to be crucified in his death. Church tradition tells us that he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same manner, and so he was crucified upside down. He had 25 years to prepare himself for that. That wasn't a rash decision. He was ready. He was crucified upside down? He was crucified upside down. Oh, by the way, in that same story, though, in John 21, Peter turns and says, well, what about John? How's he going to die? And Jesus said, what if I want him to remain alive? until I return. Listen closely. You follow me. You want to be able to lean into Jesus? You're going to have to put those horse blinders on and stop comparing your race with the people around you. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Remember how chapter 11 I've talked about before. Some people, women received their children back from the dead. Others escaped the edge of the sword. Some were killed by the sword. Some were sawn in two. Others wandered in deserts and caves. They were all commended for their faith. Your race isn't going to look like everybody else's and nor should it. You run the race marked out for you. Just because the Bible says that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will endure suffering, will endure persecution. That's true. But we're not all going to experience it at the same level. And you've got to stop comparing how much suffering you have to the people around you. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to let the Spirit of God take it to where it needs to be. Some of you are suffering more because you're too busy not learning why you're going through the suffering, and you're just wallowing in it. I shared with you last time we were together 
that I always told people, don't get off the operating table until the surgeon's done. At the same time, God's purposes in suffering have a purpose. But when that purpose is over, the suffering comes to an end, and then he has another time of other type later on. But listen, we sometimes like the fact that life is bad and everything's hard and we get to gripe and we get to have the victim mentality because we want everybody to feel sorry for us. And we really don't want our things to change. Years ago, I was on the corner of a, a busy street in New Orleans. I was associate pastor at a big church and we not only had a big church, we had a food pantry and we had a clothes closet and we had showers. And there was a man on the corner who had a sign that said, we'll work for food. I quickly pulled my car over and I said to him, I said, look, I'm an associate pastor of a church literally just a block or two away from here. We've got showers. We've got food. We've got clothes. We can even give you a job. He said, get out of here. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I've waited years for this corner. He didn't want help. He was happy where he was. Oh, he liked to complain that things were bad in his life, but he enjoyed the attention. Some of you need to stop wallowing in your pity and say, Jesus, let's get on with what you're trying to do in my life. I'm going to take my eyes off everybody else. I don't care if anybody else notices. I want to get with you and let him do what his purposes are. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is, listen closely, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I told you earlier, what's God doing right now? He's purifying his bride. He's getting her ready for his return and the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are at the final days of the church age, folks. And if you look at the book of Revelation and Jesus' messages to the church in Revelation, he says to the churches, as we get closer to the end, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. And then we get to the church in Laodicea. And what does he say to the church in the last days? He said, you think you're rich and have need of nothing, yet you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, all descriptions of the lost. And he says... I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know when that's going to happen? At the rapture of the church, when those who are really his will be taken and all those in the church, quote unquote, church members, not those a part of the true church, church members will be left behind. 
when he takes those who are his. He's right now in the process of purifying his bride and judgment. It's time to begin for judgment in the household of God. Listen, in the early days of the church, it was not easy to be a Christian, was it? No, you were gone against everything that the world was standing for. Family rejected you. You lost your possessions. We just read all that stuff. But you didn't care because you just were, you had come to know Jesus and you were looking for a better place and, and you were going to walk with him and you didn't care about this life. Then we went through this big part of the church age and we got fat and happy. And we got into the church growth movement. And that became the focus of the church, growing the church, even though Jesus all along said, narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. Oh, no, no, Jesus, we're going to build a big church. Jesus said, actually, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He even said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Doesn't sound like this massive revival that we're going to see across the globe that preachers have been preaching about. Oh, and in the end of the church age, He's, I like it. I'm going to be honest with you. As it gets harder and harder to be a Christian, I like it. Because we'll have a lot less phonies. Those who are rocky soil conversions are going to go by the wayside. Those who are thorny soil conversions are going to go by the wayside. And the true church will be seen. It's been easy to, become, to, to fake being a Christian for years, hasn't it? It's been real easy to fake being a Christian. There's lots of people say they're Christian. They don't live like Christ. They walk in disobedience to his word. But I don't know. And they'll even find churches that say you can live that kind of a lifestyle and still be a Christian. But Jesus said, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so, folks, don't be surprised that things are going to get worse in this world. And don't think if we get the right president in office, it'll all be fixed. In the five minutes we have left, I want to just touch on verses five and following. Go back to James chapter one, verses five through eight. We're just going to touch on it. We'll pick up in two weeks. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If God desires to use suffering in our lives to accomplish his purposes, then we need God's wisdom in our trials. Okay? That's what the wisdom's tied to. We need God's wisdom in our trials. And by the way, this is not referring to the wisdom that comes from human reasoning or figuring things out. This is referring to God's thoughts and insight in our situation. I'm going to deal with this in much more detail when we come back in two weeks. But when I'm talking about wisdom that we're talking about here, there's a difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And I'm going to show you next week when we come back together that God's wisdom is only understood spiritually. It's not for the smartest who can figure it out. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. What, again, we'll be heard because of our what? By the way, if you don't get this, we have to start all over again. Jesus was heard because of his what? His reverence. And we will be heard because of our reverence. 
When we say, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I'm a little bit confused. Lord, I just got done cancer. Why is it back? Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. Lord, how come every time I finally get new tires, the washing machine breaks? Lord, why has life got to be so hard? But Lord, I'm not going to step over that line and say, you aren't doing a good job. I just need understanding. I need wisdom. I need insight. The Bible says, for those who ask those kind of questions, they will be given an answer. Now, before we come back next two or two weeks from now, I just want to say this, and I'm going to deal with it in more detail when we come back. Be ready for the fact that when you pray for wisdom, that you don't think that God's going to specifically give you the answer to your question that you want. He's going to answer, and he's going to answer in a way that gives you wisdom. But sometimes he's going to say, I'll get back with you on that one, and you're going to be okay until then. Years ago, there came a time period, I was still pastor of a church here in Indianapolis, and things were going great in ministry. The church was growing, and people were coming to know the Lord. I'm preaching on radio, and things are happening, and all this stuff. But there was a period where I, I actually hadn't heard from God in a while. Oh, I was still preaching the Bible and teaching Sunday school and discipleship classes and Wednesday night Bible studies and all these things. But I, I'll be honest with you, folks, I have learned over the years how much I need to hear the voice of God. I need him instructing me through his word and recognizing when he's speaking to my heart and all. I'm not one of these people that hears audible voices. But he does speak. And he puts thoughts in my head and he leads me and he guides me and I understand his peace or no peace. And there was a period where I hadn't heard anything in a while and it was starting to eat at me. So much so that I decided I wasn't going to bed. I decided I'm staying up until I hear from God. So I go out in the backyard of our house and we live four blocks from the ocean. So at nighttime, you can see a lot of stars, not a whole lot of light over there by the ocean. And so as I look up and look at the stars, it reminds me that he's big and I'm not. And I said, Lord, I haven't heard from you. I need to hear from you. Why aren't you talking to me? I've been asking you. And there was nothing. And it felt like the heavens were brass, as the scripture says. After so many hours of just saying, Lord, speak to me, speak to me. I was exhausted and I decided just to go to bed. So I go to bed. It's like one, two in the morning and I can't sleep. Because my brain is still tormented by this. So I decide to get up and he speaks through his word. So I did something that I tell everybody never, ever, ever to do. I literally got my Bible and I closed my eyes and I opened it and I did this. Do you know where my finger ended up that night? On John chapter 19, where Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate says, aren't you going to speak to me? Isn't that interesting? And then all of a sudden, a peace came over me and all I heard was this. Jim, I was silent at that moment for a reason and I'm silent now for a reason and you need to be okay with that. And I was. A peace came over me. He gave me wisdom. Did I have an answer to my question? He didn't tell me why. By the way, did Job ever get his questions answered? No, but just seeing him 
was enough. As we move into asking for wisdom, I want you to come back in two weeks with the right attitude. It's not, he's going to answer my question. No, no. I need your insight. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks.